You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Hi, Annie. Uh, we're back at Coming Up for Air, and this week's topic is um, encouraging your loved one into treatment. Hi, Annie. How are you doing? Hi, I'm very good. How are you? Good. Good. Doing okay. So how are you this week? I'm good, and this is actually a really good topic because um, I we are out of, a, as I always say, we are past the days, not that they couldn't return because relapse is possible. And, you know, I'm, we're always grateful. And today, wherever our recovery is, however, we are about five years past the madness of it. And so I don't have necessarily somebody in my daily life I want to encourage toward treatment, but I definitely put these things into, pre- into play when I did and when it was desperate and when it looked hopeless. And when I thought even in a conversation, you know, with my son, he's going to reject it. It's impossible to even talk about it, let alone make it happen. And not only that, but I'm in meetings three times a week and I hear people that just don't think it's ever going to happen. So this is a great, hopeful, triumphant, actionable conversation to have. It is possible to encourage a loved one, a son or daughter, a hopeless spouse or partner, mother, parent, somebody. This It is absolutely possible to encourage them toward treatment for them to want to go. And I totally agree with you. I think the biggest issue today about when we say something like encourage our loved ones into treatment, the biggest issue that we face is overcoming the idea that we have to respond immediately because it's such a dire foreboding disease to be dealing with. You know, people, we're all stuck in this fear that the worst might happen, that the idea of calming down encouraging, doing it slowly, and understanding that it's a long road, I think is the biggest barrier. I think not just that. I think that we are so often told, and I I see this as a source of frustration, and though there's truth to it, don't focus on what they need to do. Focus on you and your recovery and you getting well. And that is, that's 80% of it. But still sometimes you're talking to somebody about their son or daughter, you know, or somebody they love greatly, that is still going to be a part of it, that they're going to want to see the best possible living, most positive outcome. Right. And when you hear words like you're powerless over this disease or, you know, saying those words can really kind of take that hope out of it and can really kind of take that. You want to control it. And basically what the person is telling you is you have no control over it. And, and ultimately, you don't have control over the disease. But what you do have is you have control over yourself. You have control over how to react to the disease. And you have control over how you influence, right? Mm-hmm. So engaging in the chaos, engaging in the arguing, engaging in the fighting, you really trying to think, force, trying to shame, trying right. to corner, all of trying those things. Trying to manipulate all these right. things. One, I haven't seen them. I, I really have not seen them work yet. 
I, I haven't seen them. I haven't seen a person. I haven't seen them work long term. I've seen somebody go to treatment because they were backed into a corner and forced and they had to give something up if they didn't go and they went begrudgingly. And sometimes it took. And then but then for the most part, I haven't seen those types of tactics do any good. Right. And and I would also argue that they may have been forced into going and doing something like that, but it still was their personal experience of being forced that helped them gain recovery versus the, the actual arguing, manipulating. That stuff is not necessarily what gets them into recovery. I have yet to hear a person say, you know what, it was all the shaming that did it to me that I decided, oh, to me, it's all more about, oh, you know, I was experiencing this horrible life. It's been internalized. And now I don't want to live that life. It was this, it was making this decision in their head through their experiences that they really are choosing. They really don't want to live that life anymore. Right. And there are actionable things you can do. Obviously, we've both been trained in those. I want to say one thing, though, that I learned early on is this thing doesn't play out like we expect. It just doesn't. I know a lot of people that want their loved ones to go into an inpatient treatment, but it's not possible, or they think jail is the worst thing possible. And you know, from my story, it's in my book, Unhooked, my mother tried to remove my son's consequences and make it as easy as possible and thought, if I remove stress, he's more likely to not need to put himself at risk. And I was the opposite end of the spectrum. I want to create stress. I want him to be miserable. He has to hate his life more than I do. It wasn't working for either of us. I had the opinion if he ends up in a situation where he's in jail and he's uncomfortable, that's going to wake him up. My son ended up in a luxury rehab in Southern California where they did acupuncture and massages, and I didn't think that was enough, and it was enough. So right. some people think that that's what they're trying. I mean, because I fought that. I argued against it. I shamed him for that. I, I was just holding my breath, letting him know this is not going to work. This is just luxury. And Which, he ended up finding recovery despite his setting. And so right. what we think is going to work and what's best for somebody else, we can't possibly know. Right. Which is a, a good point to make in that I, and I am a firm believer in this, that we as loved ones can kind of force our own ideas and our own opinions onto our person that's suffering or dealing with substance use disorder, dealing with this diagnosis, and we can kind of almost sabotage their recovery with what we see as recovery. Absolutely sabotage it. Yeah. And damage the relationship in the meantime. Right. Right. And sometimes with the best of intentions, because it all comes back to fear, you want them well, whatever the case may be, but I can't, you can't, nobody can possibly know what it's going to take for someone, whether we know them better than anybody in this world, whether it's it's your son or your wife or whoever, you can't know what it's going to take. We just can't know. Right. And we don't know how long it's going to take. Right. Right. We don't know if, I mean, there's no guarantees, but then, but then again, there's no guarantees in life, in right. general, there's no guarantees with other other diseases. So, why do we expect a guarantee with this? Mm, I don't know. But we can um, have better chances. Both of us firmly agree in is craft method. I don't mean to sound like it's a sales pitch, but that has been life-altering for me to learn these practices and to modify my behavior and just adjust things life-altering inside and out in every realm of life 
applying the craft method, learning some dialectical behavioral skills, things that just tweak how I respond. You can't control someone else's behavior. All you can do is adjust your response, but adjusting your response affects their behavior. And once we realize that, that begins to turn that ship around. Right. That's exactly what happened for me, right? I mean, I was, I was, plugging along in my journey. I was doing all of my reading. I was trying to get educated. I happened to be introduced to the craft method. My, I have a cousin who was going through a similar situation and she said to me, hey, have you ever heard of the craft method? I think you'll like it because I think it lines up with how you think. And as soon as she said that, I, I remember being on the phone with her, hanging up. As soon as we were done with the conversation, I went and looked it up on the internet. It brought me right to Allies and Recovery. And it was like, yes, this is what I've been looking yeah. for. And so, and I agree with you, not a sales pitch, because I think that the craft method can be applied to life in general. It really isn't just about substance it's use. It's how you disorder. respond in difficult circumstances and with difficult people or, or hostile people or people who are maybe lost their way a little bit and it's conflict. It's, it's calming. It's peaceful tactics. It's what you would get in therapy over 10 years. Right. And to me, it lined up perfectly with what I was learning in like Al-Anon and Naranon and Learn to Cope, right? All these other different types of meetings. It just lined up with everything that had been, that I had been getting from these meetings. Things like having respect for your loved one who has a diagnosis of substance use disorder, right? Or not showing up when they're spiraling and letting them know what their circumstances are and how it's affecting you and how they're hurting everybody and look at your life. Not doing right. those things. You, we've done them enough. We've said them enough. They're aware enough. Drop the weapons, take your hands off and modify how you respond to them. One thing I always thought was that, you know, overdose is very possible. Do I want my last conversation with someone I care about to be me reminding them of how terrible their life is and how much it's hurting me? Or do I right. want to say, I'm in your corner. I love you. Treatment is an option. Treatment is possible. I will move heaven and earth to get you toward treatment. That's exactly my thoughts when yeah. I was going through this. Do I, do, you know, it, so that's when things started to change for me. How I was handling this disease or my response to this disease was when things started to change. And I saw changes in my son as well. Yeah. Right. Well, because they start to drop their weapons too. And people always fear that, that once you do that, you're going to be taken advantage of and that's all going to get worse. But that's not the case because you've got borders in place and consequences, natural consequences, or your own enforced standards are still in place. It's just that you drop the conflict, you work on yourself and you respond differently. One of the things that I love about craft is when they say, always have a list of treatment centers and places they can call in advance. You're doing all this detective or other work anyway. So why not research things that you can have them and put on paper so when they have those brief moments, you know, in allies, it's called wishes and dips, but, you know, they have those moments and they pass you by in conversation or they have them when they're alone where they think, I can't live like this. Look at my life. I'm miserable. I want my life like it was or like somebody else's. In those moments, they have a number to call and it could be just that quick because sometimes a decision is made to make a call and then all of a sudden those fears come back in and then they're off to the races with using again. But right. having, a, having a list of numbers to call, that's that powerful, soft intervention. 
Right. And I also feel that when we engage in that chaos, when we participate in the arguments and we start to participate in the manipulation, actually we're, we're pushing them away and we're pushing them more to the disease because I believe that a lot of this, uh, a lot of substance use is about taking away pain. It's about this is my coping skill and this is my only coping skill. So when things are difficult, when I'm not able to communicate with someone, when something bad happens in my life, I run to the drug because the drug takes it all away. It makes me feel better. So if I, as the person that is not suffering from substance use disorder or doesn't have that diagnosis, if I engage in that activity with my loved one, I'm basically forcing them or, and I want to say forcing because that's not quite it, but I'm, I'm setting an environment where it's a lot easier for them to just actually run back to the drug and use their drug as the coping skill. Yeah. So my goal, my goal as a loved one is to take that part of it away and to, you know, you talk about it having some kind of an intervention or having some kind of an environment or a place where things are soft and warm and inviting. They can come and they can talk to me and I'm going to really listen to them, right? I'm really going to listen even if I don't understand it, even if it's incredibly difficult for me. Yeah. I'm going to be the person that is not engaging in the disease but engaging in listening and really helping. So what that means or what that meant for me was, okay, I've got to get quiet. And when I don't understand something or they're yelling at me or my, you know, my son is yelling at me and he's saying, you don't understand. Calmly and patiently saying, you know what? You are so right. I don't understand because I don't have the disease. So please help me. Help me to understand and let them talk, let them talk right. and let them just sit and listen, right? And then maybe taking it to the next step, reflect back what they said. Oh, so you mean this, this, and this. Okay, so I listened to this one woman speak one time and uh, she had, she gave me such a great idea and, and she said, you can kind of guide them to ask them, ask them flat out, what are the good points of using because there are good there are points, there are right there there's, are there's always a payoff right. right there is a payoff ask them because you don't know what that payoff is in your mind it's horrible 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 and let them say it and let them listen right and you listen mm -hmm. right and then say and now what are the negatives versus right. always pointing out the negatives right and ask them to say the negatives well i have to go to court well i have no money well i never have any food and i'm always hungry and literally just listen you know and and see what happens what what happens when they're done discussing this with you do they say you know what i don't really i i really wish i could get beyond that there's a wish there's right. a dip, right? There's an opportunity for you to say, well, you know what? I'm right here and I have some numbers and I have some people that I know that can help you. So you let me know when you're ready. And I know it doesn't, and 
don't think I'm crazy in, in thinking that it always goes this way because right. it doesn't. Sometimes they get very suspicious, you know, why are you doing this? I know what you're doing. I know you've been watching those stupid videos and da-da-da. and you've got to back down as much as you want to get in there and, and again, start engaging in that conversation, but backing down and saying, geez, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that upsets you. I'll drop it, Right walk away because there is going to be another opportunity and and by dropping it and walking away from that particular situation you're doing craft again you're you're saying i'm not going to engage in the argument i'm not going to be a part of the disease right and you're giving them the chance to walk away and think huh maybe i can go and talk to her because she doesn't want to upset me Right. Right. And she doesn't want to engage in that conversation. Well, because trust is broken down on both sides. That was a hard thing for me to realize is that it was, I would, I was like, I would think I'm responsible. I'm trustworthy. I'm not the one off in these behaviors. I haven't taken from anybody or caused conflict. How could he not trust me? So it made no sense that he didn't trust me. And that took a long time for me to wake up to that he was afraid to trust me because the the addiction didn't want to trust me. It wanted to continue him in use. And not only that, my shaming had broken trust. So how could he trust me when he's going to face more shame? Right. So that cycle, it's on, trust was completely destroyed on both sides. But I really just believed because I'm trustworthy, he should just trust me. I mean, we are all sick in the midst of that. We are really just all affected and sick and off course. Right. And, you know, it is funny, this this idea of trust, because I don't think I battled with it as much as I see other people. I just didn't trust him, and I knew he didn't trust me, and that's just how it was. And to me... I wasn't wise like that, and I don't think a lot of people are, and you're lucky you were, because that saves a lot of time. Right, exactly, and and I'm not saying I'm, you know, any better than anybody else. I just, for whatever reason, I kind of took the trust piece of it, and I put it on the shelf and said, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to worry about that, because I'm so deep, I'm so knee-deep in bad stuff without without swearing on the podcast. I'm so knee deep in it. Well, I remember a therapist telling me your, your problem is you trust sincerity. And I I said that I'm kind of confused by that. You, you trust when he seems sincere and she would say, this is what the problem is in that moment. He probably is sincere or he's acting sincere. And here's the second part of this problem. You so desperately want him to be sincere you so desperately want him to be believable and honorable and not you know you so desperately want him to manipulate you because you want to believe him you know not necessarily that I want to be manipulated but I wanted to buy it so she would say don't trust sincerity trust wisdom trust the tactics you have in place trust methods trust time right and I had to remove myself from thinking I'm going to make decisions based on him seem- seeming sincere or not or sorry or not Annie I, I know exactly what you're talking about and I've kind of I wrote about this in the past where this is what leads us into being those hyper vigilant detectives mm-hmm. and I was one of those my my thing was I didn't trust him but I felt I needed proof. Yeah. I needed to have, but, but I've also felt those feelings where, oh gosh, I wanted so, I wanted so bad to yeah. believe him. But I also knew uh, I, I, I can't, I can't believe him. I can't believe him. Right. I, I, I can't trust him. I can't, I don't trust him. And I also don't trust myself. 
Yeah, right. And that we have that that's all in is that our podcast that where we talked about trust and how you have to learn to become well and whole enough in your own intuition that you trust yourself over whether they are believable or not. And that's that's all part of the process too. But right. yeah, that's a that's a that's some of the for me that was a painful first couple of years. Or sometimes I would trust him because it was the holidays and I wanted him around. You know what right. I mean? So I would believe that sincerity and whether he meant it because he wanted to be back around or he meant it because he knew I had a weakness. It didn't matter because it always blew up in my face. So right. I would drop my guard or I would go overboard and do things or I would think we were over the hurdle and then it would come slamming back in my face. And it took me a long time to realize this is um, an ongoing situation. There's not going to be a month that it's over. Right. He may be so sober and in recovery for a long time, but this is going to be something we work on forever. I would think, oh, well, he's sincere this time. This time it's over. Oh, he went to treatment this time. It's over. He meant it this time and he actually followed through. It's over. It's never over. It's Maybe some of the certain over. conflicts are over or the worst of it can be over, but it's never over. It's a process. Right. Yes, I totally agree with yeah. you. <laughs> While I'm thinking about it, let's thank Allies in Recovery for sponsoring Coming Up for Air. Members who join Allies in Recovery can communicate directly with us. When you join, you can ask us questions we'll address on our podcasts. You can also request topics you would like us to cover. Join today at alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show. One thing I wanted to say, I was thinking about this situation um, as we were planning to do this podcast is that just like I don't know what's best for getting a loved one into treatment, I really don't know what's best for someone else. And, you know, right now during this time, we're coming up on the holidays and I've got two people close to me. They're both men in my family who are going through brutal heartache. One of them's going through a divorce as he's facing the holidays, getting older, starting over, feeling like he has nothing. And the other one has a conflict that involves losing someone he's close to. And ironically, that involves a dog as well. So he loses the relationship and the dog. And so both of them, I'm kind of juggling hearing, you know, they're both brave through it, but they're going through some brutal hard times. Mm -hmm. And my instinct is to jump in and fix it and help them solve it and get your chin up. We're in this together. This is how it can work out. You shouldn't have to go through this. I want to shorten the span of pain. I want to step in for the one situation and resolve all of that and make it all well and whole. But then I stop, step back and I think, I don't know that they both don't need to go through this time and endure the pain and be with right. it and make peace with it because then they find their own strength and they find their own peace and they get the breakthrough after it. And there's a victory in that breakthrough. And if I step in and I prevent that relationship from ending or I try to make peace and speak on this person's behalf and get this dog back around, or I try to heal this person's situation and make it all better, I could very well be blocking something they need to get a great accomplishment from or get strength from. So what I've decided to do instead, and that's, I've had to sit and be with the feelings in the midst of it because it feels brutal to watch someone that I care about struggle and, and especially be lonely and feel hopeless. But what I've decided to do is be with those waves of feelings in the moment when I want to lash out and speak up and get involved. And I let, I be with that and let that pass and I make peace with it. But what I do with them is I reach out and I say, during some of the darkest times, it meant everything and it was a relief when someone would show up or just be there or call and visit right. and maybe not make it better. So I can't fix this. I can't return this dog. I can't make this person see logic sense. I can't make the holidays different for you, except 
I can show up if you need me to. And I can tell you, you don't have to go through it alone unless right. you want to, unless right. you need to be alone. You've always got someone that you can call and I'll go through it with you. Right. I, I totally agree. Because so, we don't know that somebody doesn't need to sit in their pain and get through it because there's great breakthrough on the other side of it. We don't know that. Right. And as loved ones, the issue is, is that as loved ones, we don't want to see them go through that. No. Pain. We don't want them. To it makes me uncomfortable pain. to see right? it. It, it does. But as you said, everybody has their own journey that they're on. Everybody has their And this their could be exactly process. what they need. They need. My son not. needed to sleep in a dugout for three nights. Right. It could be somebody else needs to face some very difficult holidays because next season they're going to be amazing. It could be that this situation with this dog in relationship, they need to go through that and accept it. And then it's going to work out. And one thing I always have learned to say is when somebody's in a situation like that, you know, like if, if I have, I just said the other day, if someone's really awful toward me, am I reaping or are they sowing? Right. Am I needing to learn a lesson? You know what I mean? Or right. it could be that the situ one situation is somebody needing to reap some results of their own behaviors. Right. And there's strength on the other side of it. And that's been a big lesson for me because I've had to pull back so many times from trying to fix and help. Right. And I'm not right. supposed to carry someone else's burden. And I'm also not supposed to block somebody else from working through a feeling. Right. That's a big mistake we make was blocking someone from feeling a feeling. Right. And, and remembering just a couple of things here, what, kind of what I'm hearing you say, Annie, is, and, and I am a firm believer in this, and, I, and I, I'm going to dedicate myself to practicing this a lot more, but listen, 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 yeah. listen, listen, just be there and listen. And I think that we can apply that, right? We can apply that to our loved ones going through this. Listen, right? Listen why they uh, use the drug that they're using. Listen to all the positives. Listen to all the negatives. Listen to them discussing their process, their, you know, right. how they're learning how to get beyond this. Listen to what's important to them. And what I mean by that is listen for wishes and dips. We, we've heard this, you and I have mentioned this in previous podcasts. What is a wish or a dip? A wish or a dip is a moment of time. And I'm going to be honest with you. I think a lot of loved ones miss wishes and dips. They get yeah, I think so, you don't know what they yeah, are. Yeah, so or so muddled in it that they yeah. don't hear it. And a wish and a dip is, I, oh my God, I can't live like this anymore. Or do or, you think I'm happy like this? You right. think I, you I think want to I choose want this, this life? Right. right. I want, don't you think I want to get out of this? And, and it may just be in a fleeting moment, right? It may right. just be in a fleeting moment, but turning to the person and saying, you know what? I don't think you want this, or I do think you want a better life. How can I help? Yeah. Right? Just listen for it hear it, take advantage of it. Us. You know, I, I started tweaking one other word too. I, cause I think words become cliche or I say, and, and I could be wrong. This is just how I apply it with my people I care about. I started changing the word help to care sometimes. Not, not that you need to get help because that almost sounds a little bit like belittling and insulting. And I've, I've watched people react defensively to that. And I've instead started saying, you know, what kind of care do you need? What would take care of this? 
how can you take care of this? Ooh, I like what, that. You know, if, if we replace the word help sometimes, that's just, a, it's one of those examples of a little bit of modification that starts to change things. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. Just right. changing things a little bit. It doesn't have to be drastic. Life right. and death change. It can be these little things that turn, start turning it around gradually. Right. And language does matter. It absolutely does. And I can definitely see how someone says, you know, you need help. Yes. Right? How, what, what does that drum up in your own mind? Oh, I need help. Right? Oh, I need, I'm oh yeah. Crazy. I need, I'm crazy. I need right. to go to the loony bin. Right? Mm-hmm. Versus, you know what? What kind of care can we give you to help or, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a good sentence. But, I know. I haven't yeah. perfected it yet, but yeah, it seems yeah. like it's a better, it's, in my opinion, it's a little bit of a better twist on you need help. Right. <laughs> well, well, it really gives you this sense of, of it's coming from the heart. Yeah. Right. Versus you need, you need help. What's how can we take care of this? Right. How right. Can, what will take you? care of this? Right. How can you take, what's going to take care of this? Right. Is better than you need to get help. <laughs> Right. And, yeah. and even directing it at them, you need to get help. Right. You know. Yeah, because then they start to say, no, you need help. Which is really funny because I, I, right now in front of me, I have a, I'm looking at the titles and kind of like the keywords and terminology that go into craft. And it's really interesting. But in, in the first, mo- not in the first, in the fourth module, so module four, it talks about wishes and dips and changing your talk. And then the second step is to have more positive talk mm-hmm. or assertive talk, right? So it, all, all of this stuff is in Allies in Recovery in the different modules. Talks about help me to understand, stop criticizing, stop blaming, stop seeking to persuade or confronting, right? Help me to understand, admit your part, which I think is... That's a barrier, I think, for a lot of people. How do you, what do you mean admit your part? What does that mean? I'm not the one doing all of this damage. I'm not the one causing all this stress. Right. I'm not the one using. How am I, what's what's my part in it, right? Well, I think admitting admitting to your part means things like, you know what? I know in the past I've yelled at you over this topic, right? Admit it. You're right. I've kind of contributed to these uh, negative arguments, but I don't want to keep doing that anymore. I want to find a way to, to a solution. Yeah. Right? You've admitted your part. And then they, it talks about in Mod 4, it, uh, Section 3, is adding positive talk and reflective listening, which we've, we, you and I have talked about reflective yes. listening. We talk about it all the time. I think reflective listening is actually one of the, it's a very effective It is powerful. Way. I think yeah. it takes the wind out of the, out of the sails of a hot argument. Right. I, I agree. Um, and then it moves on to mod five, right? Module five. And module five is my loved one isn't using right now. Now what? So the first thing you have to do is you have to get really good at identifying when your loved one is high or not. Or or they've already used, or they're about to use, or they're not going to use. Why do you think that is? Why? Yeah. Why do we have to get good at identifying that? Because um, we have to apply different behavior methods, right? Yeah, I agree. What do you think? What do you think? If they're using, what should we do? 
It's been a while. <laughs> well, just Thank think goodness. about it. See, I am proof that recovery matters because I went years and years where I was around nothing but chaos and using, and now I'm a little rusty. But well, if, me, if I'm in the well, presence of somebody this. actively, I, I think just to remain calm and sane is my number one, is my first, yes, first step. Remain, I agree. Remain calm and sane. But let's talk about, let's talk about your son. If your son, you meet him, he's actively using and you guys have a lunch date he shows up and he's high and you know he's high what do you do goodness you're gonna have to coach me through this okay. it's been a while i probably well, okay my first instinct do. is to identify it but how do i identify it do i well, identify it with hostility and say oh what again or do i say are you okay yeah i personally my thing is is uh, i is i might not identify it directly for me i would um kind of say something to the effect of geez i see you're not doing well right now yeah right it you know i'm sorry uh, you're not doing well right now i wasn't expecting this how about you give me a call maybe next week and we'll try and do it again next week and leave i'm gone yeah so I'm not going to engage with the person when they're in the midst of their disease. Right. right? Again, I'm not going to engage in that. Right. How can you? I mean, really, That's how what can you, you? You really can't. I was just saying that it's, it's just like you wouldn't walk into a crowded bar at last call for alcohol at three o'clock and, right. and pick somebody intoxicated to have a logical conversation with and have a question and answer about their life. You cannot engage with somebody in active use. Right. You're just right. not going to get to the bottom of it. You're, you're not thinking right if you expect, if your expectation is for them to be logical, honest, or fair. You're just not thinking right. They right. are altered. They're just not going to be, they're just not going to be reasonable. They're just not. Right. And, and I think it's important to disengage when you see them when they are, you know, they're not sober. It's important to just disengage and then allow natural consequences to occur right right they shouldn't be getting in a car and driving if they do they get pulled over or i don't know they're at a party they fall asleep on the floor leave them now i'm in a little bit of a situation that's <clears throat> different because and i'm sure other people have the same have similar circumstances my son lives out of state so when we do see each other it's not for regular lunch dates it's because he's home for his birthday or for a week-long visit or we meet somewhere in the middle for a vacation so if he shows up and i'm suspecting that we're in a relapse conversations are kind of con concentrated effort. It's the microwave version because we yep. don't have a lot of face-to-face -face time. I, you know, I can also tell through text and communication if something's different with him. So I would handle it the same that way. But when we're in person and those visits are so few and far between, you know, that's a different, a whole different kind of game. Yeah. What would you it, suggest then? Actually, you know, I think that's a really good question, but I probably would would still find a way to disengage. I, I would be like, you know what? But I'm say sorry, we're all in our home together, the family's all together for um, a vacation for over Thanksgiving, and I'm suspecting a relapse. Do I just let the whole weekend go and not acknowledge it? I mean, of course, you can do whatever you want, but right. I personally would This is all not. hypothetical. <laughs> I, yeah, I personally would not. I would be very, well, you can't, you really can't be here. Like, let's say it's at my house it, and he, he shows up high it would be that's one of my boundaries that I've set up you can't be using and be in my house so it'd be like so oh, where does he go when I, he flies you know back to, I mean that's a whole different thing to like yeah. those are some things that you know what maybe I should look into and prepare for in case they ever happen because that's our situation right. and we've been lucky enough to have 
you know, some momentum where we haven't had that kind of chaos in a while, but he does come home for a visit and it's possible. So right. what then? You fly home on a Sunday, you leave the next Sunday and you relapse in between. Do I put you out? Do I keep you and deal with it until your flight back home? You know, these are things to just have a plan for. Have a plan. Have yep. a plan yep. for your and, family. And Think about this so that you're not caught off guard and making a plan based on shock and emotion. Have a plan. Right. And the other thing about it is, is I might not, like if I had a Thanksgiving and I had the whole family coming around and I I know it's very easy for me to say I probably wouldn't let him in and I would, you know, I would have numbers around and say, okay, you know, if you want, you can call these numbers or I know where the shelters are and I'll take you to the shelters. But I also know much easier said than done. Right. Right. And maybe if I was confronted with it, I might make a mistake and say, you know what, stay for the weekend. But on Monday, we're going to start calling treatment facilities, you know, so. Or you deal with this when you get back home, but you're home. Home, so it's so rare that you are home and with family that I'm, I, it's like going to be mournful to separate you from us the one week you're home this year. Right. So have a plan and be prepared. Right. Hopefully it, those and, things never happen, but be prepared. And be prepared that you're going to make mistakes. And yeah. if you do make mistakes, you can back it up, right? And you can go back, back to square one and get yourself together and, and get back on the uh, the rails right and then you know what you do start doing it again you do the next right thing right right right. you just you stop you make amends you figure it out you do the next right thing you don't beat yourself up and think oh I'm just starting all over what is all this recovery work for this is all useless no you made a mistake you drop the ball you pick it back up do the next right right thing and keep and forget forgive yourself you're only human Right? You're only human, and this is an incredibly complicated and difficult thing to be going through. So, yeah, you expect to make mistakes. Yeah. Right? Expect to make emotional decisions to, to, you know, get caught off guard. There's times of ambush and shock, and we don't make great decisions when we're in ambush and shock. I'm, I do terrible with shock in all situations. If you catch me off guard... I'm not very quick on my feet knowing how to handle it. It takes me a minute or two to regroup. I'd like to remind our listeners there is a wealth of information about topics related to substance use disorder on alliesinrecovery.net. Allies in Recovery is a private, members-only site that connects families with each other and teaches strategies for helping your loved one while protecting yourself. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the topic. Okay, so what else? Um, I also think in order to apply all of this stuff, right, all of craft and to apply all of these modules and all the different things that you learn, it's so, so important. You, you, you have to take care of yourself, mm-hmm. right? You, it's almost like you have to recover ahead of your loved one. Have a plan. Be prepared. Right. Be well. Right. You have to. You have to, because if you're not well, then, uh, then all the two, you, it's like being in a whirlpool and the two of you, is, you know, are right. just swirling around and swirling around and you're not getting anywhere. Nobody can swim out of the whirlpool, right? You're getting sucked in. So you have to take care of yourself. You really have to take care of your own emotional state, um, your own mental health. So let me ask you this, Annie, how do you do that? For me, it was... A- there, I have what I consider my big toolbox of wellness, and it's everything. Wellness isn't just about if you're exercising at the right weight and eating right. Wellness is also reading a book about on your topic of stress or reading a book about therapy or seeing a therapist or going to support recovery groups or calling a friend or 
earthing and grounding or um, changing some yoga. of your diet, meditating yep. and praying, yoga. I have a toolbox. And I, yes, I might turn to certain things more often than others, but there's no one set thing for taking care of myself. It's, you know, we don't just take a shower and then go to work. You have to get ready, get dressed, have your breakfast and get going. Right. You have to tend to yourself. Right. So that's all areas. And I can tell you that when I first really started on my journey of, of getting better, getting better mentally and emotionally, I had to try a ton of different things, right? right. I, I, one was not enough. It was really, I think one of the most difficult things I did was to help myself than actually even helping my loved one. And I still am not great at it. I still struggle with it. I still can be very emotional to get angry at myself, but I have to go back into that toolbox. And I'm still experimenting with things that help me, right? I mean, I'm a couple of years- Discovering new things, learning new things, yeah. I'm a couple of years out of this and I just discovered grounding and I can't believe how moving it is, but I just really discovered it. And I'm really finally taking meditation seriously. I had done it in the past, but now I'm really trying it out and really kind of putting, committing to it, committing to a real- assertive effort yeah. to meditation. And I'm finding that it's helping. It's right. You difference. have to take care of you. I had a dad say to me a couple of weeks ago, and they're just new. So, yeah. you know, it's, I, I don't want, it's interesting to watch when somebody first comes in and they're caught up in it and they're panicked and they're saying, well, they've never paid their own insurance and I, I just can't kick them out. And, or, you know, I have to kick them out. Or, and then all of a sudden you start to see them kind of calm down and unravel. And then you see them giving advice to other new people that are coming along. Yeah, so that's right. kind of interesting to watch. So they came in and they were just new and he had said, so you're telling me that when I find out something's been stolen, go put, hold an ice cube in my hand or go walk outside for 90 seconds and come back in and handle, di- handle it different and it's just going to be different? And I said, yeah, because that's what you have to do. Right, because right. what's been working so far? Screaming back, freaking out, giving right. him the benefit of the doubt to have it blow up and none of this has been working. Right. You're it, not exploding a solution. You don't crash solve problems. You turn the ship around gradually by tweaking your behavior. Right. It, right. You can go and yell. You can go and scream. You can go and shame him and say, I can't believe you stole my stuff. I can't believe you sold my yeah. stuff. All for drugs, all for drugs. Does it get your tools back? Does it get your trust back? Did you solve anything? Absolutely no, not. You're surging with them. Yeah, absolutely. You didn't get you didn't get anything. There's and no it doesn't mean you're a all. pushover because you walk away no, and handle it, it calmly. It means you're the smart one. Does it? Right. I agree. <laughs> and in the future, you can set boundaries so that your tools don't get stolen. Yeah. Right. Then you set boundaries and you say, "I'm sorry. Right now, I can't have you in my house." my tools were stolen and that's just, I can't have it right now. And, or you don't even have to say anything. You can just in your mind say, well, I can't let him in the house, right? I'm afraid my things are going to be stolen. You just, that's just how it is. You just set those boundaries and they're healthy boundaries. Right. right? I remember I I knew a woman who was a psychologist and she had told me early, early, early on, she had pulled me aside when my son was first going through all of this. And she said, I have a brother who is on heroin. And she told me he he would come to her home. And she said, he doesn't come to my home because he wants to visit his sister or because it's my birthday. He comes to my home because he sees a laptop on the counter or he sees my purse on the table. Uh 
So she said, what do I do? I allow him in my home, but he will never be in my home with anything that he could walk away with. My purse is locked up. You know, there's, I have a safe in my room. Is that terrible? Could I look at it like I shouldn't have to have a safe and watch over my purse? I could get caught up in that. But the truth is I've had to modify my behavior and I've maintained the relationship. Right. You can't, right. Exactly. That's, you have to set up your own boundaries. You, you do. They don't have boundaries themselves, right? They, the, our loved ones just don't have boundaries when they're in the midst of addiction. So we have to set them up to keep ourselves safe. And yeah, we have I mean, to, right, we have to live by our own integrity, our own value system, our own ethics. And the more we do that, I think the better off our loved ones are. And also the more of a chance our loved ones have of, finding recovery and going to treatment right because the conversations start to change then we're not fighting over what he had access to or what she could get away with or what are the same old arguments because you're not doing the dance anymore somebody has to change the dance or the dance continues right somebody has to start taking different steps so it sounds like too good to be true or it sounds like the easy way out or that you know not as it doesn't sound tough and strong but the truth is it's about changing the dance and it's what works right and you know just just kind of going back to this idea of them stealing from us and doing these unethical or things that we see as unethical this is where i tend to look at it as there's two different things going on here i have my son and i have the disease right i have substance use disorder and i separate the person from the disease the disease makes my son believe that he needs the drug in order to survive, right? That's what the, it, it's hijacked his brain. It makes him think that when my son isn't in the, when it's just my son and there isn't the disease, he does have those ethics and values and he wouldn't be stealing from me. So in those moments, it's the disease and I'm going to protect myself from the disease, which means I'm going to set up my boundaries and kind of like that woman, maybe I put my pocketbook in a safe somewhere or maybe I hide it and he has no idea where it is, but it, it, but it allows me the chance to still sit in a room with him and hold some kind of a conversation. So for me, separating the disease from the person was a huge help a huge aid in keeping those lines of communication and understanding what was going on in front of me that you know that reminds me i want to say understanding what you're dealing with is huge exactly what you're saying I always encourage people, if you get a chance to go to a meeting, they call them lead meetings or a speaker meeting where somebody's coming out of addiction and they found recovery from addiction, go because you'll hear their perspective and you'll hear, you know, I've heard one where a guy said he woke up every day and he was his own first thought. And then his second thought was, who can I get 20 bucks from? Probably my mom, but she's going to be hopeful that I'm just calling her to see how she is or that something's wrong with me. So I got to manipulate that. And it was eye opening to hear some of that. And recently... A man was talking about a lead meeting where an old timer that had been sober for, I believe, they call them old timers when they're, you know, a long time in recovery and in in a program had been sober. I think it was 27 years. And he said that disease is so powerful and it's such a voice inside him that he kept catching himself thinking, I am four years away from retiring. And I bet I could pick back up and start using again then. And he said, he caught himself and he realized 
that's how it's still there always waiting. Right. And that's how it doesn't go away and it's lifelong. That gives me like goosebumps to think about it because, you know, I'm always going to fight it. Maybe not as strongly as at the beginning or the same way, but that thing is always there lurking, waiting to come back. And it's always going to try to talk me into it. Right. And see, to me, that tells me a whole, a whole slew of things, right? Yeah. It tells me that how can I expect my loved one, when, when they have that going on inside of their head, how can I expect my loved one to hear my message when I'm yelling and screaming at them? How can you do this? Or I'm shaming them. How can I get my message across with that when that's what's going on in their head? They yeah, can't. you're fighting against that. You're you, not going to yeah, win you, against that. You can't win against that. There's no way. You have to find, you have to find a way to be just as sly. Yeah. <laughs> and that means calming down and thinking logically. Right. Because right. we're in the fight of our life with it. Yeah, we are. We are. I have this quote the other day and I saw that you reposted it. It was from Sober Coach One. He said, you cannot force someone to comprehend a message they're not ready to receive. Still, you must not underestimate the power of planting a seed. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love that saying, right? I think that's in a nutshell, right? That's what craft does it plants the seed and we can water the seed and just water and fertilize the seed and water the seed with all the different techniques and leave it alone and trust that it's going to grow right and trust that it's going to grow that's right. right. You know, I'd heard a pastor once a long time ago talk about when you look at, if you want peace in your life, do things that sow seeds of peace. If you want joy and so on. And he said, you know, you don't walk outside after you've planted tomatoes the next morning and say, where are my tomato plants? <laughs> it takes a while for those things to develop. It's gradual. It's a right. process. Just like turning this life around. When you've got off track for so long, it's gradual to turn it around. It doesn't, tur- it, you didn't get in trouble overnight. You didn't gain weight overnight. You didn't get off course overnight. You know, it didn't take a while to get, took a while to become dysfunctional. It takes a while to become functional. So you just plant those seeds and work on yourself and it all begins. Life just starts to improve. It just truly does. It does. Right. And, you know, I'm going to kind of end what I have to say on today's podcast with, with something, just a little bit of an observation that I saw this weekend. So I went away with a couple of friends, a whole group of ladies for a woman's retreat, but it was based on recovery. What I noticed was in this group of women, all of us were in the depths of despair and anguish and just in the middle of just a horrible, complex time in the middle of SUD with our loved ones. Almost everybody in the group, their loved ones went into recovery at almost the exact same time, all different ways. Right. All different process, all different journeys. But I just sat there and was like, wow, why did that happen? And I'm still kind of perplexed by it. And I still have to kind of think about it for a little while. I have a funny feeling it's because we all were growing at a similar pace. Yeah. And right. We all were in the depths. We all were shocked in the very beginning. And how are we going to deal with this? And then we we all gain skills together all at yeah. the same time, right? And uh, I don't know. And the healthier you get, the healthier the situation starts to get and the better right. chance you're, the person that you're concerned about has of becoming healthy themselves. Right. And I'm not saying all ended up in the same situation because yeah. that isn't the case. Uh, you know, there were, there were also women that, that are still dealing with it, that are still stuck with it. And there were also women that have actually lost 
a child, and I don't want to say child, but a um, a loved one. I just found it interesting. Yeah. But. Recovery works. Recovery is possible and hope is potent. And on that note, we are still coming up for air. So until Sounds next good. time. Okay, I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey. 